Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I am excited about the day, as I always am on Tuesdays. Looking forward to getting things started with uh, Rob Bluey and then Dr. Greg Borgon will be back in in the studio for part two of Body, Mind, and Soul. And in hour two, Jeff Redorn is going to be with me. We're going to talk, talk about the 10 difficult teachings of Jesus. So that's the show for the day. I hope you're looking forward to it as much as I am. If you love... Uh, conservative values, and if you love the Heritage Foundation and the Daily Signal, you've come to the right place. Rob Blue is my first guest. He's my Washington, D.C. correspondent. I always go to him for what's going on in the nation's capital. Rob, welcome. Thanks. It's great to be back with you, Bill. Thank you so much. Let's talk a little bit, just to get things started, about uh, what's going on with the uh, whether COVID-19 leaked from a Chinese lab or not. There seems to be a lot of new evidence. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that uh, we've gone from a situation where we were not even allowed to talk about this uh, or post about it on on platforms like Facebook to now the president of the United States, now that we've had a change in administration, is openly talking about his intelligence community going and doing an investigation and figuring out the true origins of COVID-19. And I think it just goes to show the frustration that Americans have with, uh, with, with both cancel culture more broadly, but these big tech platforms specifically. I mean, <laughs> the fact that people were being, um, you know, content was being uh, blocked and censored. Uh, individuals found themselves suspended because they, they asked these questions. Um, and, and now the president of the United States, Dr. Fauci and others, uh, you know, acknowledge that this is a very real possibility. We don't know the true answer. And those of us who I think were skeptical and suspicious about the, the, line, the lines that we were being told last year, um, you know, I think in some ways feel justified that it was, uh, it was well worth uh, raising those questions to begin with. When you look at what COVID-19 has done to the world, so forget about being Republican or Democrat or conservative or liberal. Really, it's important to get down to the what happened and how did this thing start and how do we prevent it from happening again? Well, that's absolutely right. I don't see it as a partisan issue at all. In fact, uh, it, it's uh, the economic damage, the health damage, the the loss of life, uh, those who are still suffer, suffering from the symptoms of COVID-19. I mean, all of those are, are you know, extend beyond partisan politics. But I think the one thing that it comes down to is China, uh, we know, is, is not um, a, a friend of the United States. They're, they're, they're not a good actor when it comes to disclosing information. They're probably one of the least transparent and mo- most authoritarian regimes that, uh, that exist today. And I don't really expect that even if the intelligence community does do a thorough investigation, the Chinese are going to cooperate in any, any way. I, I think that uh, you know, they would uh, very much prefer this to, to go away. And um, and and focus on you know new things, but there are a few things that uh, we have. Uh, I think as leverage, uh, obviously the Olympics are coming up in China. I think it would be very wise for the United States to put pressure on the world community. Um, and if if it, 
if the athletes don't boycott the Olympics, I think that it would be um, a really important move on the part of uh, the, the global community to come together and demand that the Olympics be moved. China, in some way, needs to be held responsible for what happened here. And, uh, and I think that it requires uh, the United States and our allies to be able to do that. Yeah. Uh, Rob, do you know what particular allies are going after China strong or want to go after China in a strong way? Well, I, I mean, the United States tends to talk tough. I mean, we, yeah. we can get to this later. I mean, uh, Vice President Harris was was in Guatemala yesterday and was talking tough. But um, but Bill, as, as you know, as well as I do and all your listeners, it's one thing to, to talk the talk. It's another thing to walk the walk and, and follow it up with action. And so I think that that's where President Trump uh, certainly distinguished himself from from some people in the past when it came to holding China accountable, um, holding some uh, Latin America countries accountable by, in both cases, imposing tariffs and, and other, uh, you know, mechanisms that he was able to leverage from, from the White House. So there are things that we can do as a country. In terms of allies, uh, no, you're not really hearing uh, a, a lot about it. I mean, you're hearing complaints from from individuals who uh, who have had long running um, concerns about the Chinese, and I'm talking about you know uh, the Fulan Gong or the Uyghur Muslims or others who've been oppressed in the past. But you know it's um, it's just not a situation where I think many people are uh, in a position to really be assertive against China because of the power that they hold. Uh, let's face it, they are on the rise, and uh, they like Russia are are trying to meddle in more and more affairs mm-hmm. in other countries. And the Chinese specifically with the Belt and Road Initiative have made inroads uh, throughout uh, the world in many respects. So, Rob, if China's playbook is we want to be the world's number one economic superpower, they'll probably do whatever it takes to get there. Well, it, it certainly seems to be the case, yes. And, and w- with regard to specifically the Belt and Road Initiative and some of these other major infrastructure projects that um, – that are, are taking place in Africa or, or throughout Asia, I think what we see is the Chinese will come in and they will provide uh, the money or the financing. And if if the pr- project, you know, can't sustain on its own, the Chinese come in and, <laughs> and take over ownership of it. So, you know, I, I really do think they have their reach into many places that we don't necessarily realize. They are um, incredibly aggressive when it comes to uh, becoming an economic superpower. They, they see this century as, uh, as, as an opportunity to overtake the United States in many regards, Bill. So, so yes, it's important for us to be on, on the lookout for that. Um, one other thing I'll say is we've talked a lot about the economics here. Uh, we shouldn't ignore their military rise either because they've invested a lot in, in their military. And at, a, at the same time that the Biden administration is proposing cuts to our military, uh, the Chinese and the Russians are, are putting more and more into into their military. So, you know, I think it's uh, it's uh, it's happening on a variety of levels. And it's important for us to keep this in mind, even though we're you know so consumed with domestic politics here in the United States. Um, the foreign policy actually will have long-term implications. Mm -hmm. So, Rob, you know I live in Minneapolis, so as we talk about defunding police across the country, it seems that more and more people from both the right and the left are saying defunding the police is not a great idea. Well, that's absolutely correct, because what we're seeing is that violent crime is on the rise, and uh, the individuals who either were supportive of defunding the police or maybe indifferent to it, I think are beginning to see some of the consequences to that. And so those individuals who may not have been as outspoken uh, in, in, previ- in the last year 
about uh, about some of these moves are now all of a sudden feeling the consequences of that in their own communities. And so you're you're absolutely seeing um, rates that uh, we haven't seen in in you know our country for for twenty or thirty years. Um, we were making significant progress uh, over the course of the early part of the the 21st century, and we've now seen a sharp increase in places like Portland, Oregon, which was, of course, a leader in uh, in making, um, if not fully defunding, what they call refunding its police force and and per- putting a lot more money into uh, social justice uh, efforts and. Um, and, and, and other things that go beyond kind of traditional policing. But we're seeing it elsewhere, New York, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, uh, your, your hometown of Minneapolis, uh, Milwaukee, Louisville, have all seen dramatic crime spikes bills. So um, certainly something to be concerned about and pay attention to. And I'm glad to see that the news media, which you know I often criticize, is, is starting to pay attention to this as well because they know that it's hitting communities really hard. Yeah, I, I heard today that Seattle has lost 278 officers. Well, that's the other problem that you have is that so many, even even in the Washington D.C. area, there has been a a, a shakeup at the top of all of these police uh, departments uh, over the course of the past year. Now, some of them are people retiring because they, they maybe their that time in life, but in other cases, I think it's um, it's people who've lost the will to serve, or they just feel it's not worth the effort, uh, given the criticism that they might have to endure. What we're also seeing, Bill, is a recruiting problem. Uh, there are fewer and fewer people uh, going to police academy, and uh, the police departments just don't have the the, the the staff. So if you combine the resignations, uh, the leadership changes, and the fact that you just have fewer people going into policing, you're absolutely going to have a shortage. And I think that that's, uh, that's one of the situations that we find ourselves in today. Rob, I'm trying to figure out when we calm down, though, as a, a country when it comes to any kind of authority interacting, shooting, there was a, a murder suspect here in Minneapolis last week, and he had an illegal gun and started firing at authorities, and they returned fire, and uh, unfortunately, he lost his life. But I think that's what happens when you shoot at authorities. Now, this time, it was the U.S. Marshals, not the Minneapolis police. However, the protests started right away, and the well, fire Bill, and I think everything. That- yeah, and and this is an area. This is an area where obviously, even before it gets to that point, when the tensions start to boil over, or somebody you know decides to to, to do something like that, um, you know, or, or shoot at the police or shoot at others, um, something something out prompted that to happen. And I think this is where the role of, of faith and religion and our churches and 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 more broadly, just you know, civil society at large can really hopefully have an impact. And of course, we've all been stressed over the course of the last year. People have lost jobs. Um, you know, our society is starting to reopen, but, you know, it's it's not necessarily opening at the same pace for everybody. Um, there have been family struggles. So there's a whole number of societal challenges that, that we find ourselves in now. And that's not excusing anyone's behavior, but I just think it's a reality. And it's one of those things that government alone can't confront. And so it's why it's so important that if you you know somebody who's struggling to ask them to go to go speak to a priest or a rector or somebody, you know, who can provide that that support or if there's a you know, if there's a hotline where they can uh, where they can get help. Um, you know, before it gets to the point of violence, mm-hmm. I think that that is 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 so important, Bill. And and you're right; um, it it leads to tragedy in some cases, and uh, it's just heartbreaking to see how how families are broken up over 
over these things and whether it's uh, a police shooting or whether it's um you know just uh, a, a gang shooting or or in the, you know some of these cases in Washington DC where it's young children who uh are just you know kind of in the wrong place at the wrong time and uh and who lives whose lives are broken as a result mm-hmm. comments or questions you can send them over to 877-933-2484 Rob Louie is my guest executive editor at the Daily Signal uh, we'll be right back Rob Blue is my guest, executive editor at The Daily Signal. Rob, I had a listener wanting to know the different interpretations of what defunding the police actually entails. Could you speak to what they're hoping to accomplish overall with this objective? Sure. Well, it, it is on a different level depending on who you might be talking to. So, uh, for instance, one of the uh, co-founders or, or former, sorry, maybe, um, sorry, Bill, let me take that back. One of the, the former executive director of Black Lives Matter uh, was saying that we need to completely uh, get rid of police. So there are, that's the most extreme level, I would say, is uh, abolishing the police. Uh, there would be the, the funding that currently goes to police would be completely redirected to other sources. And then there are the others who say the police budget is simply too big. Uh, we should be spending mm-hmm. more on, on on mental health or um, you know other uh, protective services that you know are non police related. So I'd say that that's you know a, a, at another level. And then uh, you have others who say, well, um, you know the the police. We acknowledge that we need police, but we think that, that we need to retrain them. And so the police, uh, you know, wouldn't necessarily respond with. Um, uh, shooting or tasering, but, you know, they would, they would try a different approach. And, uh, and I think that, you know, I'm not an expert on police, but I mean, I've heard all of these arguments being made. And I think that, yes, uh, there, there are always going to be some, some bad apples and regardless of what, you know, what industry you're, you're working in. And so I think that, uh, in some cases, the, the training could probably be helpful. Uh, I think in other cases, you know, individual, individual cities might, take a close look and see, you know, how they are allocating funds. And if some decide that, you know, maybe there are, are other more more efficient ways to spend the taxpayer dollars, uh, that's within their local prerogative. But also it's within the voters' right to, to boot those politicians from office if mm-hmm. they don't like the, the direction. But I think this radical notion of completely defunding police, uh, abolishing police forces uh, is is a step too far, and and I think that that ignores the good work that police do in so many communities uh, that doesn't get the kind of media coverage or any kind of coverage, frankly, because it just goes under the radar. I mean, it, it, you know, Bill, as well as I do, having worked in the media, I mean, it, there's the old saying, if it bleeds, it leads. Um, and that's what the news media tends to focus on. They don't focus on when a, a police officer may, you know, 
save a kid's life or do other noble things that just, uh, you know, don't necessarily get picked up in the, the exciting uh, police report. Not I'm guilty of this as well. I used to be, uh, I used to cover the police in a local community in upstate New York. And I, I know that those were, you know, there's a big traffic accident. You, you know, th- those are the things that you, you tend to, to grab your attention. And so I think that, um, to your listeners question it's just important to take all that context into into your your thought as as you you know evaluate whether or not uh, you want to really make these these changes to your community yeah and then i think of the not only the safety of the citizens of of a city but the vitality of the city if you want major events to happen in town if you want conventions and sporting events and have your city be a draw that brings in tourism and industry i think you really need a strong uh, police presence. Oh yeah, no, there, there's no doubt about that. I mean, and and it's uh, you know last week last week I didn't get to join you, Bill, because we um, we had a meeting at the Heritage Foundation in Austin, Texas, and so uh, it was my first opportunity to to travel by by airplane uh, since the <laughs> pandemic started. Yeah. I mean, it's just remarkable. And and frankly, uh, you know, I was actually thinking about this. You know, the number of law enforcement people that you encounter from the the moment you you know kind of step foot you know, at the airport where you're departing and to the point where you arrive and then, you know, everywhere you go at the hotel. I mean, security plays such an important role in in our country. And uh, yes, sometimes it's uniform police and other times it's, you know, people who may be, you know, plain clothes. But uh, but we really do count on them and rely on them to keep us safe. And I think that sometimes we may take that for granted and not realize all of the things that they do, even behind the scenes, um, to 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 make that effort. And there, look, there are there are definitely things. I mean, just reading today, Bill, that the Capitol Police, which took you know such um, uh, you know blame for the January sixth uh, you know attack on the Capitol, uh, they had an intelligence unit which uh, you know was was. Uh, observing uh, social media chatter and other kind of uh, warning signs uh, ahead of January 6th. And it was simply a matter of people not talking to each other. So yes, there are failures in our police forces. There's no doubt about that. But I think we need to figure out what are the ways that we can, we can, you know, attempt to overcome those challenges and, uh, and, and prevent things like that from happening in the future. Yeah, we did miss you last week, although Genevieve Wood did a very nice job. Well, she is a fantastic person, yeah, and uh, and I'm grateful that she had the opportunity to chat with your yes, audience. Yes. Now, earlier today, I listened to Rachel Del Judas interview Ted Cruz on his trip to Israel. I know that is on the DailySignal.com uh, website. You might want to give our listeners a little tease about that. Well, Senator Cruz was with us in uh, in Austin, Texas last week, of course, his his home state of Texas, and he was just returning from, he had just returned uh, from his trip to Israel, as you mentioned, and of course, this came on, uh, you know, the, the 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 right shortly after um, Israel and Hamas were engaged in that uh, in, in that fighting. And so, you know, you have a situation where I think Cruz saw firsthand with his own eyes uh, what what many of us may not, may not understand and what the press unfortunately i don't think you know tells the full story that uh you know the the actions of hamas are really um you know mind-boggling and in some ways just terrifying that they would use palestinians as human shields um they would you know deliberately you know fire their weapons into civilian areas and they would um, they would do so to obviously make it look like you know Israel was in engaging in this in this type of behavior. When in fact, I mean, it is um, it is as Cruz described it a war crime. Uh, I mean, his view um, to to shoot 
you know, missiles and, and weapons into a civilian area. Um, so, yes, it is. It was deeply troubling to hear some of these uh, these situations that, that he he spoke about. Um, you know, I think that, you know, it's um, it's an interesting situation we find ourselves in with uh, with the relationship with Israel. I, I think we've talked in the past, Bill, about uh, how the Democratic Party in particular has a changing position on Israel. They're not as uh, as, uh, you know, supportive as they they once were. And now we're seeing in Israel, um, you know, a, a domestic situation there where Benjamin Netanyahu may no longer be prime minister, um, you know, much longer. So, uh, definitely a situation that uh, we paid close attention to and appreciated Senator Cruz bringing us his, his first-person perspective. Mm-hmm. Rob, Senators uh, Manchin and, and Cinema are not the most popular people nowadays. That's right, particularly within their within in their own party. Exactly. And uh, you might you might add Angus King of Maine, who's an independent, uh, to that list as well. Uh, well, let, let's face it. I mean, we have a 50-50 Senate bill, and they're not going to always get the 50 votes. Right. So they really need 51, the vice president, to cast a tiebreaker on some of these deeply partisan issues. And, and Manchin and Cinema and King have all expressed uh, concerns about uh, HR1 or S1. Uh, that's the, for the People Act. It's this massive overhaul of our election process in this country. It would uh, remove uh, authority from the states and put it in the hands of the federal government. It would ban things like voter ID. Um, and, uh, and frankly, it would, uh, I think, for all those people who already have doubts about uh, our elections, and there are a great number of them, uh, both after the 2016 election, probably more so on the Democratic side and, and a lot on the Republican side after 2020, I don't think this is the right move uh, that you want to make. And that was essentially Manchin's argument that um, this is not a way to restore trust and confidence in our election system. And he's not going to go through with a partisan move. Uh, to do this. Um, now, if there's other steps uh, that, that Republicans and Democrats can can see eye to eye on, I think he certainly would be willing to do that. But he also said he's not willing to uh, forego uh, the filibuster, which, of course, is this longstanding Senate tradition that brings Republicans and Democrats together to have to agree on something with 60 votes. So you don't just have one party ramming things through. And I think that it served the Senate really well um, for for a very long time, and uh, it would be a mistake uh, for for the Senate Democrats to get rid of it um, just for some short term gains that they want to pass uh, with with the Equality Act, with HR one, and with a few other measures. Well, historically, President Biden has been a, been a big fan of the filibuster. Oh, he has. Yeah. As recently as, as 2005, just a, a few short years before he became vice president himself, he uh, was part of a bipartisan group which uh, came out and was very much supportive of keeping the filibuster, talked about it being an essential uh, uh, element of the U.S. Senate in, in terms of fostering bipartisan agreement on things. And of course, Biden, you know, uh, while well, he was campaigning and even as president has talked about the importance of bipartisanship. In fact, uh, Bill, uh, you know, just some breaking news uh, that I see coming across, uh, Biden and, uh, and Shelley Moore Capito, who's Actually, uh, another West Virginia senator who happens to be a Republican have abandoned their infrastructure talks. But Biden said he's now going to be working with a bipartisan group of Republicans and Democrats to try to find an agreement. So, you know, it's uh, it's it's really interesting that on the one hand, you have all of this chatter uh, on Capitol Hill about ramming through these partisan measures when the leader of their party keeps talking about trying to approach things in a bipartisan way. So I think the American people might be feeling a little bit of a disconnect about what's going on, but uh, that is politics for you. That is politics, but I'm glad uh, President Biden is encouraging that. Rob, thank you so much for the time today. I always look forward to our chats. 
Thanks, Bill. It's good to be with you. You bet. Rob Blue has been my guest, executive editor at The Daily Signal. You can always head over to dailysignal.com. We'll take a little break. We'll come back. Dr. Greg Borgon is going to saunter into the studio here, and we're going to continue our discussion on body, mind, and soul. Be right back. So glad to be here with Dr. Greg Borgon as we continue our study on body, soul, and spirit. Today we're going to focus on soul and spirit today, which I'm looking forward to. You can always head over to heartofawarrior.org to learn more about Greg and his amazing ministry. He's a man of great, uh, he's a student, he loves the word, he's got amazing integrity, and he loves to communicate truth to us. And here he is once again. Greg, welcome back. That's good to be here, Bill. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I know you're leaving for... Ireland on Friday for six, seven weeks? I can't wait. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Wipe that smile off your face, would you? <laughs> Knock it off. All right. Let's uh, let's do a little review, if you don't mind, of what we talked about last week, just to get everyone up to speed again. Sure. We, we talked actually about the pathway. We talked about, first of all, um, the brain as the receptor. We talked about the mind, which is the processor of the sensory input that the brain receives. Um, we talked about... Um, the fact that uh, humans are are actually created um, with three entities, uh, two of which are spiritual or non-corporal, and, of course, one of which is our body. So body, soul, and spirit. And we just briefly touched on them, but we traced it uh, um, from the sensory input all the way to behavior as it's mediated through a malleable conscience that can be restored or reinvigorated by the Spirit of God. And we talk specifically about the heart, which is often used interchangeable with the soul. A heart being the core essence of who you are, the seat of your will, your emotions, decision-making, everything that you are that makes you unique, the Bible refers to as the heart and sometimes used interchangeably with the soul. So um, it's hard to, to, to actually be adamant about clear lines of separation between soul and spirit because there are some biblical scholars who think we are comprised of two entities, which is uh, spirit and body. Uh, and actually, they certainly acknowledge, because the Scripture does, that uh, includes the soul, but they kind of lump the two together seeing very little distinction between them. But I like to, to look at it from the perspective of body, soul, and spirit, starting with the spirit in particular, because there's a confusion about that, Bill. Okay. All right, let's just uh, briefly talk about the differences again. And what I'd like to do is, if, you can, if the audience can think in their mind of three different columns, one is spirit, one is soul, one is body. I'm going to give you some phrases that may help you distinguish between those three before we kind of dig a little bit deeper. Okay. All right, so when we talk about the Spirit, we're talking about God-breathed breath of life into us. When we talk about the soul, it's the core essence of our being, and when we talk about the body, of course, it's the external host for our soul and our spirit. We can also look at it this way, that the Spirit is indeed the Spirit. The soul is all about self 
in the identity of self, and the body is about our senses, the five senses. We can look at it in another way, and it's all correlated, but we talk about the spirit as being God's image that was breathed into us. When we talk about the soul, we're talking about the heart, as the Bible refers to it. When we're talking about the body, we're talking about the flesh. One unique distinction that I really uh, think uh, is helpful when you think of the spirit, it's God consciousness. That's what makes us different from animals, is that human beings have God consciousness. In other words, it says in Ecclesiastes 3, 10, and 11 that God's placed eternity into each man's soul, not so that he knows what God's done from the beginning to the end. So we're born with a sense of the eternal. And so when we talks about God breathed into us, we're talking about not only the sense of the eternal, but that we've been created in his image. That's not true of animals. So God consciousness, the soul is self-consciousness. Whereas Can the I body stop is just for a, a sure. second? I just want to have a question because the God consciousness, although I understand is a gift from the Lord, it's the way I listen to that, I, sometimes it sounds a little new agey. Yeah, well, it's not I, don't, I know you don't mean way. for it to be that way. I don't mean it to be that way. I know you don't. When, when we talk about God, it just means that we're conscious of God. Now, because of the sin in our life, we can marginalize that. We can put it on the perimeter of our life. But the fact of the matter is when you, again, look at Ecclesiastes 3, 10, and 11, it compels us to ask these questions. Why am I here? Am I making any progress? And will all I do have any lasting impact? That's not original with us. Right. I mean, in every human being, in every age, in every country, every every place, comes up with those same or variation of those questions. So what compels us to ask those questions? It's the sense of the eternal in us, the fact that we're conscious of something outside of us, a creator, even though we can't define it. That's what general revelation is all about. Yeah. Well, as a Christian, I think about God all day long. I'm never not thinking about him Mm -hmm. in some capacity. Yeah. So if that's my God conscience, then I'm I'm, I'm cool with that. Yeah. Well, the the whole idea is, is that man is incapable of coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ without a sense of the eternal already embedded in him or her. So in other words, it's awakening, it's a quickening of, of our understanding through special revelation, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the word of God that quickens our spirit. Because I think that um, Neil Anderson uh, is very helpful in his book, Victory Over Darkness. He talks about uh, three different types of of, uh, situations for the human being. He first of all, talks about uh, the natural person, or excuse me let, me, let me start with the spiritual person, which is life in the spirit. And uh, when we talk about life in the spirit, we're talking about an individual that has body, soul, and spirit, but has been saved, has been awakened to what God has done for him through the finished work of Jesus Christ, and is living a spirit-filled life. Then you have what's called the uh, fleshly person, That's an individual who um, had uh, an awakening and has walked by the Spirit, but now all of a sudden is submitted to sin in their life, and all of a sudden it's become dull now, their sense of the eternal, the sense of God in them. And so we're talking about that fleshly person who is now, who is saved, but is now reverted back to living in the flesh as they once did. And then, of course, uh, you have the the natural person. That's how we're created originally, 
with body, soul, and spirit. That's helpful. Thank you for that clarification. I appreciate that. All right. So let's let's dig in a little bit further again to uh, the spirit. It's important for us to understand what we mean by the spirit. When it says that we are body, soul, and spirit, the fact is, is that it says in Scripture in Genesis that God breathed life into humans. And in that process, what that breath signifies is the animation that he gave us to live. In other words, it was the image of God that he embedded in us. It says that we are created in God's image, which again makes us distinct from animals. So what do we mean by this image of God? Well, here's what J.I. Packer has said about it, and we've talked about this on on a previous show. J.I. Packer says, when God made man, he communicated to him qualities corresponding to his moral attributes. This is what the Bible means when it tells us that God made man, uh, meaning both men and women, in his own image, namely that God made man and woman a free spiritual being, a responsible moral agent with powers of choice and action, able to commune with him and respond to him, and by nature good, truthful, holy, upright, in a word, godly. So that's how he originally uh, created us with that image in us. But Packer goes on to say, the moral qualities which belong to the divine image were lost at the fall. God's image in man has been universally defaced, for all mankind has in one way or another lapsed into ungodliness. But the Bible tells us that now in the fulfillment of his plan of redemption, God is at work in Christian believers to repair his ruined image by communicating these qualities to them afresh. This is what scripture means when it says that a Christian is being renewed in the image of Christ and of God. So the fact of the matter is, is that we are body, soul, and spirit. The soul itself is what... um, When we die, I mean, the body goes into the ground, but the soul is what goes before the Lord or it goes to a a temporary place until the end of the age, and then the judgment has taken place. In the presence of the Lord, though. Yeah, presence of the Lord. Mm -hmm. Either they're in the presence of the Lord if they're followers of Christ, or they're not going to be in the presence of the Lord. And so consequently, their soul, which is clearly identifiable one from another, which makes us unique, which includes our mind, it includes our personality temperament, how God's wired us, uh, how we superintended our formation in our mother's womb. It's what makes us unique and distinguishable from each other, that beautiful entity called the soul. And that's what God restores when, when um, uh, we receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And then at the final uh, day, it says in Scripture, on the final day, our bodies are going to be, uh, well, it's not going to be risen from the earth. In other words, he's not going to be putting the fragment of pieces back together. We're going to have a body like Christ. So now that soul is united again with a physical but a spiritual body glorified like body. Christ, a glorified body, yeah. one that could, just like Jesus did, walk through a wall, isn't wouldn't that be great to do? No, I can't wait. To be in one place or another in an yeah. instant, to be able to enjoy food without having to go on a diet. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I can just imagine sitting at the table with all that Irish lobster. <laughs> <laughs> but in any case, at the last day, whenever that is, and you have a guest that's been talking about the end times, and I'll let him differentiate when that takes place. But it says very clearly in Scripture at the last day, that's when then we're given our new bodies. Right. So 
the spirit that we're given, what it's talking about is not only the essence of the eternal, but it's also God's image in us. And, but it's marred. It, it, it comes out of the womb marred because of original sin. And, and it needs to be restored, but we're uh, incapable of bringing salvation to ourselves. That's why we need a Savior who can restore that image, as J.I. Packer says, afresh to us again. So that spirit that God breathed into us is a sense of the eternal. And uh, Romans chapter 1 talks about it extensively. So that's what we mean by the spirit. Okay. Now, when we're talking about the soul, let's go back to what we had talked about earlier. And the soul, again, is the entity, the core essence of, of who we are. It's what makes us unique, which makes us different. As we said, it's what uh, is ushered into the presence of Jesus Christ when we die. At the very moment we die, there is no such thing as, as soul sleep. Um, so we go into his presence, and then when our bodies are united again or when we have that new body, uh, there'll be a new earth, and there'll be a new heavens, and uh, we'll be living together again, but we'll be in physical form, but mm-hmm. a very unique one. But the essence of who we are, the soul, is what can be um, tainted or calloused or conditioned to be something that it wasn't designed to be. And so we end up living a distorted and a corrupted life, at times having flashes of the eternal or of a sense of the eternal coming out of us because of these qualities that we received in the image, but often are buried. They're just flashes, and it's kind of like this ember, Bill, that's kind of underneath the ashes of these bad decisions that need to fresh breath of the Spirit to blow across it, to well up into a flame again so that people can distinguish us as followers of Christ. Mm-hmm. Let me take a little break. Dr. Greg Borgon is my guest. We're continuing our discussion on body, soul, and spirit. We're kind of focusing on spirit and soul today. We'll take a short break, and we'll be right back. jumped in your car and you turn on the radio and you hear that song, you must be thinking, hmm, I bet Dr. <laughs> Greg Borgon is his guest. And if you guessed that, you are correct. We're talking about body, soul, and spirit today, but we're focusing on the difference today between the spirit and the soul. That's what we're going to try to cover in the next 11 minutes, Greg. Okay. Good luck, my friend. Uh, yeah. All right. The soul and the spirit are uh, the two primary immaterial parts that the scripture ascribes to humanity. So it can be confusing to attempt to discern the precise differences between the two, as we've talked about in the Mm -hmm. previous session. But the word spirit refers only to the immaterial facet of humanity. So human beings have spirit, but we are not spirits. However, in Scripture, only believers are said to be spiritually alive. For instance, uh, in 1 Corinthians 2.11, For who knows the person's thoughts? except the spirit of that person which is in him. 
So also one, uh, no one can comprehend the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And then we read in Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, pierced in division of the soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So those are two powerful passages. Um, but believers, unbelievers, are spiritually dead. In Paul's writing, the spiritual is pivotal to the life of the believer. So when we read, for instance, in um, Colossians 1.9, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will with, uh, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So in Paul's writing, the spiritual is pivotal to the life of the believer. So the spirit is the element in humanity that gives us the ability to have an intimate relationship with God. That's what I actually yeah. meant by, by God consciousness. Okay. This is coming from uh, GodQuestions.org, which I, I think is very helpful to us. Whenever the word spirit is used, it refers to the immaterial part of humanity that connects with God, who himself is spirit. Mm-hmm. So the word soul can refer to both the immaterial and material aspects of humanity. Let me clarify that. Unlike human beings having a spirit, human beings are souls. In its most basic sense, the word soul means life. However, beyond this essential meaning, the Bible speaks of the soul in many contexts. One of these is in relation to humanity's eagerness to sin. Uh, Human beings have a sinful nature, and our souls are tainted with sin. The soul, as the life and essence of the body, is removed at the time of physical death. So we read in in, um, Genesis chapter 35, 18, and uh, it was referring actually to an individual. It says, and as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name, but his father called him Benjamin. So it's just kind of referring to the fact of, a, of the soul departing. So the soul, as with the spirit, is the center of many spiritual and emotional experiences. The word soul can refer to the whole person, whether alive on earth or in afterlife. So the soul and the spirit are connected but separable, mm-hmm. as we saw in Hebrews 4.12, a division of the soul and the spirit. The soul is the essence of the being of a, of a human. It is who we are. The spirit is the immaterial part of humanity that connects with him. So when we talk about the soul, we're talking about, you know, how we're wired in terms of our spiritual uh, gifts, if we're followers of Christ, our natural abilities, our talents, our personality, temperament. um, All of that is, uh, in essence, part of who we are and can be distinguished while we're, we're living. So the fact of the matter, the soul is also the seat of intellect, emotion, and will, much like the heart is referred to uh, in Scripture as having also be in the seat. So that's why the heart and the soul are used uh, interchangeably. So let me just focus now, if I can, on the few minutes we have left, on what is the human soul, more specifically. So the Bible is not perfectly clear as to the nature of the human soul. But from studying the way the word soul is used in Scripture, and I'm quoting here from an article, We can come to some conclusions. Simply stated, the human soul is the part of the person that's not physical. It is the part of every human being that lasts eternally after the body experiences death. Um, Genesis 35, 18 describes the death of Rachel, Jacob's wife, saying she named her son as her soul was departing. That's the passage we just referred to a few moments ago. 
From this we know that the soul is different from the body and that it continues to live after physical death. The human soul is central to the personhood of a human being. As George MacDonald said, you don't have a soul, you are a soul. You have a body. In other words, personhood is not based on having a body. A soul is what is required. Repeatedly in the Bible, people are referred to as souls, like in Exodus 31.14, Proverbs 11.30, especially in contexts that focus on the value of human life in personhood or on the concept of the whole being. So the human soul is distinct from the heart in some respects, and also very similar to it. That's why it gets a little confusing. And the spirit and the mind. The human soul is created by God. It can be strong or unsteady. It can be lost or saved. Uh, It can be, um, we know that the human soul needs atonement and is part of us that is purified and protected by the truth and the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the great shepherd of our souls, it says in Scripture. Mm-hmm. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, it tells us that we can turn to Jesus Christ to find rest for our souls. Psalm 16, 9 and 10 is the Messianic psalm that allows us to see that Jesus also had a soul. David wrote, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul in Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. This cannot be speaking of David, as Paul points out in Acts 13, because David's body did see corruption and decay when he died, but Jesus Christ's body never saw corruption. He was resurrected, and his soul was not abandoned to Sheol. Jesus is the Son of Man, as the Son of Man has a soul. So, again, just to summarize, um, it's maybe simplistic, but also biblical in in many respects to see ourselves as three entities. Uh, Two of them are not corporal, that is, that are not bodily related. So you have spirit, you have soul, and you have body. And that's how God wired us. That's who we are. And it's the soul that will rejoin him uh, when we go to be with Jesus Christ, uh, when we pass from this earth. That's comforting, for sure. I love that. So, um, it'd be interesting also, when it, it, if you want to go ahead and make it even a, a little more simpler, um, it isn't a simple subject at all. I don't, it it's not a simple subject. Said, no. So, when again, we talk about the Spirit. Um, the Spirit, we're created to contact, receive, and contain God's image. The soul relates to our mind, our emotion, our will, our thinking, our feeling, our choosing. And the body is all about, you know, sight, smell, taste, touch, and hearing. So the spirit is spiritual. The soul could be said as being psychological, where the body is physiological. And that's how we see ourselves in um, as God's creation. Mm-hmm. That's great. It's really, really interesting uh, to s- kind of process through this, uh, I know we all think of ourselves as as a body and a soul and a spirit, but mm-hmm. just to apply some of the biblical principles to it and to realize that we are uh, created in God's image. He breathed life into us. It's yeah. a powerful image. Yeah. I, I hope it's clarifying, especially when you think of the spirit, about God breathing into us. And you had mentioned when we were off uh, offline here about the fact of 
God is spirit, but he actually breathed, it says, breathed life into uh, human form. But so the spirit, when it talks about the spirit, we're talking again about God's image in us, whether it's marred or otherwise, and we're talking about a sense of the eternal. And that's what the Bible means about our spirit. Very, very nice. Greg, have a wonderful summer. You're off to Ireland on Friday with your bride, and, and yes. it's going to be a wonderful seven, six, seven weeks, huh? Yeah, eight weeks celebrating eight weeks, uh, our 52nd anniversary. But who's counting, I said Bill? six or seven. You bumped it up to eight. <laughs> it is eight. It's actually 56 days. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you've counted. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that'll be a wonderful trip. And God bless you on this journey and this travel and this time with your wife. And how many years have you been married? 52. 52. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, Thank have you. a wonderful trip. I'll see you at the end of next, at the end of the summer. <laughs> <laughs> We'll take a little break. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, 10 of the most difficult teachings of Jesus with my friend uh, Jeff Redorn. So we'll take a very short break and be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.